You're listening to the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast by Cepos, an independent free market think tank based in Copenhagen. Continue listening for inspiring conversations with experts and thinkers about economics, politics and society. Your host is Cepos president Martin Overup. Today's guest is uh, Professor Art Carden. Art is a professor of economics at Samford University's Brock School of Business. He's also affiliated with a number of research institutions, including as a senior fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research and the Fraser Institute. Art Carden is co-editor of the Southern Economic Journal and has published papers in journals such as Southern Economic Journal, Journal of Urban Economics, Public Choice, and Contemporary Economic Policy. He's co-author of this book, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, which he um, co-authored with Professor Deirdre McCloskey. It's published by the University of Chicago Press. Now, Deirdre McCloskey is a former guest mm-hmm. uh, of uh, CPOS where she uh, spoke, mm-hmm. and um, that speech was actually published in this po- podcast, so we will link to uh, to, to that uh, and to the conversation that uh, we've had in a different podcast with uh, uh, Professor Deirdre McCloskey. So there are certain aspects of the book that we've already covered there uh, that maybe we don't go so much into, but it's... Uh, It's um, it is a great book. It's a con- it's very condensed, mm-hmm. obviously, because it's it's your attempt to with uh, Professor McCloskey to uh, condense seventeen uh, hundred pages mm-hmm. plus notes, and there are many notes as well in in the original uh, trilogy. Um, tell me about just briefly about the the, the original trilogy and mm-hmm. uh, how you got to to writing uh, this book and what it's about. So Deirdre's original bourgeois trilogy uh, it consists of three books, one published in 2006, The Bourgeois Virtues, another in 2010, uh, Bourgeois Dignity, and then in 2016, Bourgeois Equality. And these are massive, massive tomes. Like you mentioned, about 1,700 pages in total. Um, we met, um, gosh, in, in October of 2012. We were both filming some stuff for the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And we, we'd gone back a while, and, and she asked me if I wanted to co-author this book with her to try to produce a, a shorter, more accessible version of her overall bourgeois trilogy. And, and the the answer is always yes when a, a scholar <laughs> of Professor McCloskey's magnitude asks you to do anything. So uh, we ended up working together on this. Uh, it was published in in 2012, uh, excuse me, 2020. And the paperback actually actually is going to be out in November. And oh, okay. the title, Yeah. So the title is Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. And uh, it was it was mm. an adventure yeah. to write. Now, bourgeois is normally a, a word that is uh, that has so, some negative connotations, right. Right. Uh, except in Danish. There's a Danish word, borli, mm-hmm. which is, uh, at least for, for people who are mm-hmm. classical liberals or conservatives or neutral mm-hmm. uh, a positive word yeah. it's uh, so that's uh, kind of interesting and it's a word that uh, combines the whole non-socialist movement mm-hmm. in Denmark so if you're conservative you'd call yourself bourgeois bourgeois would be mm-hmm. an okay translation i guess uh, if you're a classical liberal you would as well and um, you know even people on the far right mm-hmm. would would tend to call themselves uh, uh, bourgeois bourgeois mm-hmm. 
but why do you? But but the term in English, I think, is uh, slightly unusual. So uh, this is to, to use in a, in a positive connotation, right? And part of this, I know from from when Deirdre really sort of formulated the project originally. This would have been, gosh, over about twenty years ago now. Um, she she wanted to use the word bourgeois very specifically to kind of needle the left a little bit, and a lot of our friends in, in academia who see it as, as almost a term of derision. She argues that that to a lot of the things that we associate with being bourgeois and base and and sort of not high and, and, mm. and fancy, she argues are in fact actually virtuous. Um, so most people in the United States, when they hear bourgeois, first of all, they, they ask, okay, what, what is bourgeois? Uh, then the people who, who know, they think of, they think of, of middle-class values. They think of really not having much of a purpose beyond the next paycheck and, and a, a variety of different things. One of the things that Deirdre argues in her big bourgeois trilogy and that we try to make, uh, the try, we try to make clear here is that a lot of the, what we would think of as bourgeois virtues are in fact actually virtuous. Um, there's, there's a certain, I'll call it a moral sophistication that comes with a, a bourgeois emphasis on taking care of your family, taking care of your community, doing your job, showing up to stuff on time, you know, things like that, that may not express the sort of greatness of soul that so many academics like me want to, to, uh, want to hold in, in very high esteem, but nonetheless, enable us to take care of each other and that have helped to generate the world in which we're we're so much richer than our ancestors and in particular in which we who are probably not the descendants of royalty I, I know I'm not um, can have these sorts of discussions about whether or not being bourgeois is okay and that's that's kind of the essence of her of her big project and then what we're trying to distill into something a little bit more accessible here. What you're saying makes me think about uh, an experience I had mm -hmm. quite some years ago now where mm -hmm. I turned up at some uh, panel debate on mm -hmm. a Saturday and uh, the moderator said, you know, it's, it says something about the society we live in that on a day like today, the shopping mall is full, but the city council building is, mm -hmm. is empty. And I said, no, no, that, that's that's great. Yeah, I mean, that's the way you want, yes. you want things mm -hmm. to be. And what's so bad about a shopping mall? I mean, mm -hmm. what what... What would the world be like if we had none? Mm -hmm. Actually, you've done a lot of research into, yes. into that Walmart and, mm -hmm. and shopping malls and retail regulation. Right. Maybe we can get into that later. But do you want to ex expand on that idea? You know, why why is it that 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 bourgeois um, values like uh, you know actually turning up on time or mm -hmm. pay? You know, what's wrong with paying your paycheck for right. Christ's sake? Uh, sorry, getting your paycheck yeah. and, and paying your bills and mm -hmm. and uh, and and the rent on time. That mm -hmm. that's that's good things, right? Yeah. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned the shopping mall thing because I remember when I, taking a class when I was an undergraduate, the uh, professor lamenting the fact that. You know, it, what in the 50s and 60s, like the, all the old men of the community would sit in front of the courthouse. And now they sit at, you know, Waffle House or a fast food restaurant drinking coffee. Or he, he said, you know, they, they sit in the food court at the mall. 
And he thought this was a horrible thing. And, and I remember thinking, you know, okay, well, first of all, we live in Alabama, which is, is you know, it, it, it's funny that really right now in, in Copenhagen, for example, people are talking about how hot it is. And it's, <laughs> this is nothing like the weather in Alabama. And I can't imagine anything more miserable than sitting outside a courthouse in August in Alabama. Absolutely. Let's sit in the air conditioned mall food court. Mm. Um, and while it's true that someone someone shopping at a mall or working at a mall is probably not thinking about big questions about how we organize society. They're nonetheless engaged in this, this cooperative endeavor mm -hmm. that allows us to care for one another without necessarily caring that much about one another. Um, so I, I travel a lot and very, very frequently will forget something. And on this trip in particular, I, I, I arrived on time and my luggage didn't. So, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Eh, you know, it, <laughs> these things happen. Um, so I get here and I get checked into my hotel and I've been wearing the same clothes for you know, 30 hours or whatever. And I, I, probably, I can't tell. Well, not, not now. Not now. Okay. This is, yeah, this is by the time I got, these, these are, this is in the luggage I picked up at the airport last night. So, um, so, I thought, so okay. it did turn up, right? right. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. So it's like, I probably look and, and smell like death, no doubt. So I, so I go to the mall and, uh, meet a young man and he's never, Never seen me before in his life. He probably doesn't really care that much about who I am or or anything. He doesn't know my kids, doesn't know their favorite food or anything like that. And yet he's he's there and willing to help me take care of the things that I find important. Um, he's yeah. willing to, to help me find a, you know, a, a clean shirt and clean undershirts and clean socks and stuff that's very, 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 very valuable when you just, just really feel awful. And um, I don't know him. I'll probably never see him again. I don't know what he does for fun. Um, but we're able to work together to advance one another's goals by coming together in this in this commercial exchange. Now, some people might say that, well, I, I should know who he is. I should care a lot about him in some very, very real and deep sense. But unfortunately, people have cognitive and moral limitations. I have, I have my own children, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old, that they are more than enough um, uh, – they're more than enough to handle and more than enough to think about and, and deal with. And one of the cool things about a commercial society is it allows, it allows strangers to come together for mutual benefit. And I don't think people appreciate that the way that they should. Oh, I agree. And you, you said that people working at the mall probably don't think about uh, great things. Right. But um, that's, that's a pity, mm -hmm. uh, I think. You know, I, I think that's really a pity. And I think all of us, both... Mm -hmm. Those of us who are customers uh, mm -hmm. yeah. who uh, who get this sort of <laughs> miracle happening right. uh, that that you can turn up there mm -hmm. as an an, an American and and be, be, get what you want and what you're looking for in, in that situation at a reasonable price, we should be grateful yeah. and the people working there should be proud. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you know when, when I'm uh, at um, a, a food. Uh, you know, supermarket, food, mm -hmm. food shop, or whatever, and I, I look at you know mangoes or avocados or whatever, and see it's 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 a miracle. Yeah, you know, if yeah. if somebody was to uh, you know the, the the part of the market system is that we get mm -hmm. prices, mm -hmm. and uh, if 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 we didn't have a market and mm -hmm. somebody came with a, a, a let's say a mango, mm -hmm. I said okay, you know, 
here's here's the deal. This thing will grow somewhere. I don't even know where right, mangoes yeah. grow, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this will grow somewhere. Uh, but, you know, be, be, not, be, not be, Denmark, be, <laughs> right? Be, it'll be uh, cultivated somewhere, mm-hmm. and at some point it'll, it'll it'll be nurtured. At some point it'll be picked and mm-hmm. and carefully transported, and then some somehow it gets to Denmark. I don't have a clue how mm-hmm. it gets to Denmark, uh, and uh, then it's brought to the shop, and they mm-hmm. make sure that that it's there and available mm-hmm. for me, and there's all always mangoes virtually yeah uh, and some of them aren't sold so they get mm-hmm. old and they rot etc that's mm-hmm. that's part of if you if, if you want it all to always to be available that, that, that there will be some that that are, are wasted mm-hmm. how much do you think one would cost if, if I was out there, you oh. know if, if they said fifty dollars I was like yeah sounds reasonable yeah oh at least yeah. at least yeah it's <laughs> this it's it's it's, yeah, it's so amazing that they, they can sell at a fraction of that right um it, so mangoes you know for example they don't grow in Alabama they don't grow in Denmark avocados they don't grow in Alabama they don't grow in Denmark um and yet we were able to get things like this at, at relatively low prices in fact so last night I, I I walked around to a couple of the grocery stores near near my hotel and saw these gigantic beautiful looking mangoes and thought this is this is this is a miracle that in, I'm in in northern Europe and I can get the mangoes that are indigenous um. to equatorial regions where it's a lot hotter and and for a, a very 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 small price and they're delicious I didn't buy one I probably should have talking about this now I'm thinking I just, uh, just in, 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 in awe of, right, of, of yeah, the yeah, miracle yeah um, you know, we get uh, in, in, at home, you know, we shop at our local farmer's market and buy things that are in season and whatnot. And, okay, yeah, sure, like the strawberries when they're in season in Alabama are better than the strawberries when they're not in season. Of course. But still, the, the, the notion that you can get pretty good strawberries at any time of year is incredible. And we think about what, what this mm. means for nutrition. We think about what this means for quality of life. We think about what it means for um, the fact that we don't have to spend as much time feeding, clothing, and sheltering ourselves so that we don't die, that means that we have more time to spend on building relationships with friends and family and, and reading and, and uh, nurturing ourselves. Um, one of the more famous TED Talks is Hans Rosling, the, the Swedish epidemiologist, talking about the, the wonder of a washing machine. And he talks about when, when his yeah. family got their first washing machine and how it freed up all of this time they could spend reading books. Mm. And things like that. And I think about the, the time I've the time I've been able to spend reading to my kids because I haven't had to spend that time yeah. scratching the ground to grow wheat or corn or blueberries or, or what have you. And it's yeah. it's that really resonates yeah. with me. I think <laughs> I apologize to mm. to listeners. I think I've said this on a, a previous mm-hmm. uh, podcast, but uh, my grandmother mm-hmm. uh, told me about washing, you know, in the basement. Mm-hmm. And you know, washing linen and mm-hmm. uh, all, all the stuff that you need to wash uh, mm-hmm. b- before the washing machines, and you he- need to heat the water, mm-hmm. and it was cold uh, basement, and mm-hmm. it was uh, you know it was damp. And uh, she t- told me, I am convinced that my rheumatism comes from that, and, oh, and that yeah. that was very very. I mean, she had decades mm-hmm. of her life that were painful yeah. be- because of yeah. that. So, and that's the sort of thing that that go underappreciated mm-hmm. uh, the, these days. How is this, all this we're talking about, mangoes and, and mm-hmm. washing machines, how is that How is that related to bourgeois values? So a lot of it, um, it, it stems from what we call the bourgeois deal. So leave me alone and I'll make you rich. And around the middle of the 18th century or so, we started embracing liberty and dignity for entrepreneurs and innovators. And we came to think that there was more, that, that inventing a new thing 
might be something good to do or or running a business might be virtuous. It might be something to to be esteemed. So for example, a, a lot of people when they go to college, they want to they want to study business or they want to do something that will get them a good job. And we think of that as just a normal and good, decent thing to do, to pay your bills on time, mm. for example, to uh, to create value for other people. We we stopped honoring and esteeming and idolizing kings and priests who were sort of spending all of their time slaughtering other people or what have you, and instead started to to venerate James Watt for uh, inventing the steam engine or uh, people who who uh, innovated in, in the production of textiles or today, like for example, um, Steve Jobs is somebody that people look up to as, as sort of a great person of the modern era mm. for um, we think about the iPod, the iPad, the iPhone. Um, <clears throat> but it's not a digital situation, though. It, it right. doesn't go from zero to one. Right, right. It, it right. goes from, I don't know, something close to zero mm -hmm. to some, 0 0.85 or something like right. that. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So, it, so there's still a lot of, of mm -hmm. mistrust against mm -hmm. bankers, for yes. instance. Yes. I mean, that's yeah. that's been ongoing for, mm -hmm. for centuries. And mm -hmm. when there's a financial crisis, mm -hmm. it just gets... A lot worse, and there's mm -hmm. very little appreciation of how important the financial right. system is and how, how much benefit that has given mm -hmm. to us. I mean, the washing machine is easy to see and understand mm -hmm. it, but the financial system, right. uh, you know, pe people just think of banks as, and bankers as horrible uh, uh, creatures that live off the back of the rest of us. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, they, and, and it's some entrepreneurs mm -hmm. are, are well-liked, but, you know, mm -hmm. big business owners, mm -hmm. not necessarily. Right. If they're no longer on, it's, it's most the sort of self-made man mm -hmm. that made it from, from nowhere to, mm -hmm. to wherever he is. But there's also a lot of stuff going on that, where, where people aren't that happy about it. Right, Could yeah, you say it, some more about that? There's a weird tension. Um, yeah. so, so the word that we hear in the United States all the time is disruptor. So everybody wants to be a disruptor of this industry or that industry or the other industry. And we, again, we hold up like the, the, uh, the technology entrepreneurs and innovators and things like that. While at the same time, um, bankers, we, we tend not to trust because people, first of all, don't understand really what prices do. They don't understand what profits are and they don't understand what interest means. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think of bankers and financial intermediaries as just these parasites who are not actually creating any value, but they're just sort of extracting resources from the economy. Um, that, that, though, that though raises an interesting implication, which is, and I think about the last time I got a mortgage, um, when I borrow money to buy a house, if the banker is just, if the bankers are just there effectively taxing us or effectively just sort of taking a cut, then it seems like we could save a lot of money by doing this differently, by going around, just walk around the neighborhood or whatever and borrowing money, $5, $10, $15 at a time until I come up with enough money to buy my house. But then when you think about that, you realize that that's utterly absurd. Yeah, so, completely, yeah. Right. So the, so the and it's something I try to tell my students time and time again, because mm. a lot of our, our students at Sanford end up going into banking. Um, what they're doing is what they're doing is they're reducing transaction costs. So the cost of organizing exchanges, they're making it a lot easier for they're making it a lot easier to link people with money to save to people who wish to borrow. So instead of having to go all over Birmingham, you know, with a you know, hat in hand asking people for money, I'm able to just go to the bank. And they're able to specialize in figuring out, okay, how risky am I? Uh, how likely am I to pay back the, the loan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, 
Furthermore, when I've got money to save, I don't have to wait for people to come around asking to borrow $10, $15, et cetera, and then having to evaluate, okay, well, is this person really going to pay me back? I can put it in the bank and they handle all of that hard work for me. So um, that's an area where we appreciate it a little bit more than we used to. Um, again, for, for for the better part of, of history, bankers and intermediaries and, and quote unquote middlemen have been seen as being almost like in league with the devil. Um, that changed a little bit. Interest charging was yeah. illegal, right. I yes. think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So charging interest, for example, in, in uh, a lot of religious traditions has been has been either outright prohibited or looked at as being something untoward. So people say, well, you can't make money off of money. Uh, fortunately, in the last hundred years or so, we've come to understand that, in fact, actually time is valuable and moving money from or moving resources from some point in the future to some point in the present is itself creating value. But we still have a, we still have a, a long way to go. I think in, in terms yeah. of really understanding yeah. and understanding how the financial sector works and um, I think yeah. what it does. I think you're right that with the financial sector, we do understand it better actually than we did. Yeah. I, yeah, I think you're right there. What about big business? Uh, what movement do you see there in general? Yeah, so again, that's fascinating because everybody wants to be a disruptor. Um, if you're going to disrupt, then presumably you're going to create something big. Um, for for reasons I'm not sure I fully understand because I'm not a psychologist, we we tend not to we tend to look very skeptically upon large enterprises. It's it's easy when when you think about when you think about a shop where you know the proprietor or it's been in a family for generations, like you can see the guy behind the counter who is who's taking care of everything. Shareholders and executives in some far off place they tend not to be as they they're not as morally relevant or not as morally salient as somebody that you can see, a living, breathing human being you can look at. Um, and so large enterprises tend to be much more depersonalized. And by virtue of the fact that we can't sympathize with a large enterprise like a Walmart, for example, the same way that we can sympathize with a, a, a smaller enterprise like you know, a local shop, um, is one of the things I think that helps to explain why people are very skeptical generally of really, really, really big business. Mm. But what big business does, well, several things. First first, and, and uh, probably most importantly, they expand selection and they lower prices. So we get more stuff at lower prices. If there's competition. If there's competition, right, yeah. And that's a very, very big if. Right. Um, of course, it, people might people would, would say there's a lot more to life than, than low prices and, and wide selection, and that's absolutely true. But low prices and wide selection expand our possibilities with respect to the people that we love the most and care the most about. So uh, again, I think about my family by virtue of having low prices and wide selection because of the effect of large retail establishments like Walmart or Target in the United States, we're able to have, uh, we, have we have fewer things to worry about because we our, our money goes farther. And um, we have a much broader scope for building relationships. So think about um, yeah, my 10 year old, for example, has become a, a Lego fanatic recently. And he was, he was enthralled by the fact that I'm coming to the, I was coming to the country where Lego is from. And uh, uh, this, this seems trivial in some sense to make these little plastic bricks and for the, to, to lower the prices of these little plastic bricks. But when I'm building Lego sets with my son, like that, that's, that's really building a relationship. That's a very yeah. important human thing. And 
uh, some executive at Lego. Somewhere. I built with Legos when yeah. I was a child, and that that yeah. was no laughing matter to me. No. That was very very important. No, no. Uh, and I probably learned a lot mm-hmm. of all kinds of from from you mm-hmm. know uh, uh, um, using my hands yeah. with fine. Mm-hmm. What do you call that? F- fine motor skills. Fine motor yeah. skills. Um, to, uh, you know, planning, mm-hmm. uh, creating something, to being creative, whatever. Yeah. You know, that's, I probably learned a lot Yeah. Uh, playing with Legos and having yeah. fun. Right. Um, so so that's, I agree, that's, that's, that's an example. There's no laughing mm-hmm. matter. Of course, there are, I guess, part of the problem with all this uh, and assessing an individual mm-hmm. business is that uh, you do have businesses that that are parasitical right yeah uh, so uh, you mentioned Steve Jobs mm-hmm. uh, I could mention Carlos Slim mm-hmm. in, uh, in in Mexico right. how did he get rich mm-hmm. yes well you yeah. know he he got his <clears throat> bodies uh, in government to mm-hmm. hand him uh, a, a telephone monopoly and he mm-hmm. charged higher prices than market mm-hmm. prices to the poor Mexicans yeah. uh, because they needed to make phone calls and that's mm-hmm. how he became very wealthy yeah. and that's that's obviously the opposite of bourgeois values it is it is yeah and that's um that that's one of the reasons why so for example my favorite novel is Atlas Shrugged uh, by Ayn Rand and it's it's sort of a, a an homage to the capitalist bourgeois spirit. And and one of my favorite passages, one of my favorite phrases in the book describes one character. It says, he never wanted to make money. He only wanted to get it. And I think that's a really, really important distinction because in, in a commercial society, making money means creating value. Um, and making other people happy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Making other people, making other people better off. You know, when Lego earns a profit, it's because they have made people like me and you, Better off, you and they, your son again. You know, right? Yeah, they, they don't know us. They may not. They'll. I'm sure they care about us in some in some abstract sense. Like they're probably not. You know, they, they probably don't wish us ill, but they don't care about us the same way they care about their own kids. Um, but the Carlos Slim example that that's merely getting money. That's getting money by prohibiting competition, by restricting competition, by using force to be the only game in town. But I guess you could argue mm-hmm. now if I'm. You know, if, if if I'm going to be the devil's advocate here, sure. Adam Smith wrote mm-hmm. that uh, if you set p- business people together, they mm-hmm. will conspire right. against the public. Yeah. Uh, so, isn't why isn't that bourgeois values? Isn't okay. It? I mean, they they they. It's an easier way to get oh, money yeah, 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 yeah. than, than so, to make money. So, so when we when we lay out what we call the bourgeois deal, so it basically says, it, it, imagine the world in three acts. So it's a, it's a three act drama, and the first act, someone says, so Steve Jobs will say, says, okay, tell you what, let me try new things. Let me come up with a new way to uh, store music, a thousand songs in your pocket or whatever. In act one, let me let me try a thing and let me keep the profits. Okay, I recognize that in Act Two, the second act, that's going to attract competition. Microsoft is going to come up with something called the Zune, that's going, which ended up failing, but that's going to um, try to compete with the iPod or, or the iPhone is going to be fantastic. But then Samsung and everybody else is going to try to make their their own thing. Um, I recognize there's going to be some competition, but by Act Three, I will have made a lot of money, and everybody else will be much better off. The problem, the problem with this bourgeois deal is that it's kind of unstable there in Act Two because the first thing that everybody wants to do when they succeed is pull up the ladder and prevent other people mm. from coming in and competing with them. So this is where political institutions are really important and also where sort of a broad ethical consensus really matters because 
uh, everybody, everybody, everybody loves the profits that come from their own innovation, and they want to protect those by again preventing other people from from competing with them. So where we have to be where we have to be very very clear politically is in making sure that the rules are such that it's really hard for Apple to prevent other people from competing with them or really hard for for Neto and Aldi to prevent other people from competing with them or just really really hard for people to erect these barriers to entry which again the this is this is the substance of of basically the way the world has worked for almost all of history in in Europe during the medieval period the guilds were uh, famously restrictive in terms of what they would allow people to do um, I, I forget the exact country and context, but I remember one one place it was it said uh, no one shall innovate in the baking of bread. So like there there's the way you're supposed to bake bread, and nobody's supposed to do anything different. Uh, or if you want to again in, in a different place, if you have a new method for weaving, then it has to be approved by all of the senior weavers in the guild, or you can't do it. Right. Okay. And and this is so this so is this is like Carlos Slim, except in the 15 and 1600s. Yeah, yeah, and you had royal privilege, mm-hmm, uh, right. so you had the king saying mm-hmm. that you can import this mm-hmm. and nobody else can, right? And stuff like that. Yeah. And the the reason why the king would do that is that then he has a friend there mm-hmm. who who can yeah. uh, pay him. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. It's, it's, it's a source it's, of tax revenue. Yeah. So this is uh, the, the way that it's it, a, extremely distortionary way yes. of, of taxing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, actually, uh, you might f- you probably don't. I'd be very surprised if you knew this, and you might find it interesting. Mm-hmm. Søren Kierkegaard, the the, the Danish mm-hmm. uh, philosopher theologi- mm-hmm. theologian, he was relatively wealthy, which is mm-hmm. the reason why he he had the time right, to yeah, write yeah. the stuff he did yep. about why getting married or not getting married mm-hmm. and all the yep. considerations he was having. Uh, and the reason for that is that his father challenged uh, a royal privilege. I didn't know he'd, that. He'd, he'd come over from Jotland and he was selling mm-hmm. uh, some kind of cloth and uh, he wanted mm-hmm. to move into, I think it was silk, mm-hmm. and found that there was uh, he couldn't do that. And he cha- he challenged that uh, at the court. Huh. And uh, and uh, the, the, the privilege was overturned. So I guess that's an example mm-hmm. of bourgeois values yeah. uh, kicking in or whatever you right. call it, uh, spreading and... and Having a conse- a real consequence in, in in society. Yeah, is that is that the sort of development you you saw you you've seen all over the world? Yes, or yeah. rather all over uh, the Western world at least. So we mentioned the financial sector yeah. a little bit ago, and and um, the financial sector in the United States is is the way it's regulated is just insane and has been for a very long time. But for a really long time, there were restrictions on branch banking. So uh, so. A bank couldn't ho- couldn't have more than one location, and it couldn't do business across county lines. So, if you're a bank in uh, a little county in rural Iowa, you're not allowed to bank anywhere other than that particular county in rural Iowa. And if you think about what that does, it it, it utterly it utterly messes up the risk profile because it means that that your entire like your entire loan portfolio is. Corn. Yeah, if the like, harvest goes bad in right, Iowa, yeah. the, yeah, yeah. the bank is going to go bad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If the harvest goes bad, you're screwed, um, and so is everybody else. Um, so Harry Brock, for whom the Brock School of Business at Sanford University is named, challenged Alabama banking regulations, which were very similar. And ultimately, I think at one point he was he was sued. I want to say he was sued by every bank in the state of Alabama at once 
because he was he was trying to fight against these, these banking rules and banking regulations, and ultimately he won. And now Birmingham is actually a bit of a, a financial hub, mm-hmm. and the banking the banking system in the U.S. works a lot more efficiently than it did back when. You know, again, if, if you're in Alabama in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, and you're and you operate in a cotton county, then then your entire loan portfolio again is cotton. So, um, so risk is is completely. I believe that's up. that's part of the reason mm-hmm. why there were so many bank runs right. in in uh, in the Great uh, Depression. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was regulation mm-hmm. creating that situation that the banks. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Many banks actually went down, didn't they? Right. Yeah, yeah it, I think I want to say that the three thousand or four thousand banks failed in the United States wow. during the Great Depression, and zero banks failed in Canada right. during the Great Depression because um, the way that the Canadian banking sector was regulated, it allowed it allowed banks to spread their risk uh, more broadly than than banks in the United mm-hmm. States were allowed to. So, so it was regulation right. that caused the bank failures, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and of course. People hearing about it will say, there you go, markets don't work. Right. <laughs> you're yeah. right. Makes me think of this cartoon with the two two little kids and mm-hmm. one of them has a, has a blue crayon, one has a, a red, and there's there's been painting with red all over the world, <laughs> and all, all over the wall, mm-hmm. and the parents turn up and the red was, he did it. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that's a that's that's frustrating sometimes is to, yeah. to uh, the history of the Great Depression, for example, is a history of bad monetary policy and bad regulation. But most people think... Uh, when most people think of the Great Depression, they mm. think of this as this signal failure of unstable capitalism. Well, yeah. once again, can you give another couple of examples of that? Sure, of uh, just regulation creating. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, <clears throat> well, retail is is a big one. You mentioned I've I've, I've done a little uh, some studies of Walmart in the United States, and a lot of major cities in the U.S. have rules that specifically prohibit. Uh, companies like Walmart from entering. And of course that keeps prices high. So that means, so one of the reasons why prices are so much higher for- Is that legal to specifically say that Walmart is not allowed? You're not, I, I don't believe you're allowed to say thou shalt not have Walmart. But I think in a lot of cases, a lot of cases what they'll do is they'll create a rule saying stores of this particular yeah, size, big, bigger, than, right? yeah, yeah, bigger yeah, than whatever, yeah, yeah. and yeah. it just so happens that the only store that that refers to, the, the only store that fits that description is Walmart. Mm. Um, well, this is one of the reasons why prices are so high and selection is so low in low-income areas in the United States. So, for example, I, I uh, not long ago did a bit of comparison shopping for uh, for my, my principles of macroeconomics class. I went to a, uh, a little store next to a housing project uh, not too far from where I live, and bought a can of spinach, and it was uh, two or three dollars. And the same same quote unquote can of spinach would have been a buck fifty or buck seventy five at a nearby Walmart. And uh, Birmingham is a little bit better than a lot of other cities in terms of allowing allowing retail innovation and allowing larger larger retailers. But Chicago, Washington D.C., New York, et cetera, have very very specifically tried to keep stores like Walmart and Target out. Again, to the detriment of the people that they presumably care so much about. Um, okay, so yeah. but, but a lot of people would say, mm-hmm. no, that's that's not what's happening. Right. What ha- mm-hmm. what happens is Walmart moves in, mm-hmm. and all the small shops are mm-hmm. are uh, com- you know completed out of existence. Right. Uh, you end up with a situation where you have this big store mm-hmm. far out, and only if you have a car mm-hmm. uh, will you be able to get there. And right. then you have a, a food desert or whatever it's called uh, in in your local area mm-hmm. where you can't get any food really. Mm-hmm. 
What, what, what would you say to that? Yeah, so so first I, I would appeal directly to the evidence. So so in in 2019, <laughs> that's always clever. Yeah, well, you know, it's it just so happens <laughs> everything that, else fails. Look at the evidence, <laughs> and it just so happens I've got a paper about exactly this question. So, okay. Uh, so in 2019, my co-authors and I published a paper in a journal called Applied Economic Perspectives and Policy that looked at the relationship between Walmart super centers and food security. So in the U.S., there. Um, uh, the government measures food security with a survey uh, and asks questions like, you know, how often did you, in the last, whatever, two weeks or three weeks, have you skipped meals because you didn't have enough money for food? And we find that when Walmart supercenters enter, food security improves. So people have, by virtue of the fact they have access to better selection and lower prices, the frequency with which they're skipping meals because they can't afford food actually goes down. Um, that's the, there is a real concern there, though, that if you have um, if you're if you're if you're running a store competing directly with Walmart, then you are your days are numbered if Walmart opens next door. But that said, there the, the process of what the economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction is one where we replace old ways of doing things with new ways of doing things. Right. And people will select, they'll choose to shop at Walmart, they'll choose to shop at Target because they prefer the they prefer the lower prices and the better selection, or they'll get lower prices at the stores they already shop at because of Walmart and Target's competitive pressure, then the money they're able to save, they can do more with. Yeah. So uh, there's a really interesting study, um, it's about 2008 or so, and one of the examples it used was a Morgantown, West Virginia. And yeah, sure, Walmart opens and a lot of the Walmart competitors go out of business, but eventually they're replaced by new stuff. They're replaced by boutique clothing outlets. They're replaced by uh, fancy ice cream shops, places that don't sell the stuff that Walmart does. And I remember when I was in graduate school, I, I don't know if this has been, uh, if anybody's really followed up on this, and graduate school was a long time ago now. Um, <laughs> but I remember reading about Aldi's expansion patterns. So right. we have Aldi in the United States as well. And we actually shop there pretty frequently. But uh, in about 2003, 2004 or so, I remember reading an article about, about Aldi's strategy being to open up, being to open stores where Walmart has come in and other places have closed. So they're basically opening a bunch of new stores in Walmart's shadow. And um, of course, shopping at Aldi is a very different experience from shopping at Walmart. Um, <clears throat> and and, they, and they, they tend to to open close to each other, right? Yeah, that, 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 that was the story as of, yeah, again, that, about that, that, almost that, 20 years ago. But, that's what I've yeah. been observing here right. in Denmark as well. You, you, you always tend to have a high-end mm -hmm. and a low-end yeah. shop right mm -hmm. next to each other mm -hmm. so that people can go and buy yeah. their, I don't know, their toilet paper and, right. uh, and, and maybe their beer in the low-end one. And then mm -hmm. they go into the high-end one and get... Mm -hmm what they need from there, yeah. fish or fresh fish or whatever. Well, we think about, uh, again, thinking about, um, think about Walmart, think about Walmart in competition. The, the idea that Walmart's going to drive everybody out of business and then they're going to be the only show in town, that just doesn't, ha that just doesn't happen. Um, okay. And even, even then the, the effect of Walmart or Walmart's effect on competition or excuse me, on selection and price means that people have greater scope to do other things. So, um, where we where we do see a lot of innovation then is in in areas and sectors that provide things Walmart doesn't do. So again, you, you go to Walmart and Walmart is unbelievable. Like it's just, it's, yeah. it's incredible that the selection and 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 everything. Um, but they have they, they specialize in providing low to medium quality goods for people of relatively modest means. So. Um, 
a lot of places that are a lot of places that are able to provide stuff Walmart doesn't do are in fact able to do better as a result of Walmart's effect on prices and selection and li- making everybody around them hmm. kind of richer. I guess some of the stuff you're seeing in, in some city centers is that they used to have all kinds of shops mm-hmm. with, yeah. uh, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And and most most of those are gone now mm-hmm. and they, the people shop for those things in mm-hmm. different places. But then you get cafes and you get right. ice cream shops yeah. and you get mm-hmm. specialty shops of mm-hmm. certain kinds, you know, lux- yeah. luxury goods uh, mm-hmm. that are sold. And it actually makes the, 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 the high street nicer. Yeah. The, 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 yeah. When pe- people go there to have a good time mm-hmm. and may- maybe sit down and have a cup of coffee in mm-hmm. the, uh, outside in the street when the mm-hmm. weather's like this, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, whereas uh, in the old days, oh, you went there to do your shopping and then you left. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't remember. But, uh, you know, all, not all towns are moving <laughs> right. in that direction. Some are actually yeah. having trouble, you know, getting shops in True. them at all. Yeah, and, and that's... that. It's important not to. It's important not to pretend that doesn't exist. Mm. You know, like obviously, I, I can't imagine anything worse than like you poured your life into a business and now it's gone because Walmart opened up down the road. Uh, it's, it's important to keep in mind that 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 is like those are real costs. Those are real human beings paying real prices. And and you know, in a what decent society, what is the bourgeois society, answer to that? Ah, okay. In a decent society, Clay. like you, you take care of you take care of your friends and neighbors. Um, you know, you do stuff like if, if your if your neighbor loses a job, you invite them over for dinner or, or you, you get together and you make sure they have what they need. Uh, I know that, um, it's pretty common practice, I guess, in most places when someone has a baby, you know, all of their friends and family, they, they bring them food and they take care of them. And for a little bit, similar sort of story again, when someone loses a job or loses a business, there, there, there are institutions of civil society that are pretty good at easing that transition. Um, and, and it, there's, there, there is no way around the fact though, that if you, if you have run a shop your entire life and it goes into business, like you, you, that's a real damage or that's real damage to a real person, but there are real benefits being created for other real people who now have greater scope to, to live the lives that they want to live. As, as we were talking about before, that mm-hmm. that person can transition into mm-hmm. an, another kind of shop mm-hmm. or right. you know, get, getting employed or, or, or whatever. Yeah, in, and in, if you have a flexible labor market and right. free market economy and all that, and and the reason people hate economists is we don't know exactly what people are going to do. Um, yeah, you know, again, if if you'd ask me, uh, I think about when, when I was in college in the late 1990s, it, nobody said being a social media manager or having a social media presence or or podcasting where it would be uh, would be the sorts of areas where you're going to have opportunities to grow and opportunities to earn money. Um, we we fundamentally don't know what people are going to come up with. Uh, for a lot of folks, that's very scary, but I, I find it I find it almost a, a reason for hope. To say, or a reason to be really excited, is to know mm-hmm. that okay, sure, we're going to have some of these short run, redu- some of these short run changes, but it's all going to be replaced ultimately with something even better. So again, just to just to use a specific example, you mentioned ice cream shops. Um, we 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 spend more money on premium ice cream now than than Frank. I'm really frankly comfortable with, but because uh, <laughs> I'm a giant cheapskate. Um, but one of the reasons we're able to do that is because we can buy stuff on Amazon, for example, and yeah. we, we spend a lot less time and a lot less money shopping. Ice cream on Amazon. Ice cream. Well, no, 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 excuse me, excuse me, no, no, no. Sorry, we buy, oh, you buy other right, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. How did they? No. <laughs> well, it's, it's actually funny because they're they're offering same day delivery now uh, in in uh, oh, yeah. okay. in, in some places. But yeah, so we so for example, I was uh, I was on my way home from getting a haircut, and my my 
my haircut stylist, I suppose, said, uh, you need to buy this little particular thing to trim your hair. And so a couple of flicks of my thumb, it was on its way from, from Amazon. And so the time I, the time I didn't spend shopping for uh, a little razor, the money I didn't spend because it was cheaper as a result of Amazon, that meant we were able to go to the ice cream shop a little bit more often. And, um, and so, so we, so we spend, we spend more money at the premium ice cream shop than we, than, than we would have been able to were it not for, uh, say the effect of Amazon, the effect of Walmart on right. some of these other sectors. I've, I've, I guess a few years ago, mm-hmm. I would have, you know, if, if, if you said to me, mm-hmm. how, how did the West become rich? Mm-hmm. I would have said, well, we started to protect property rights. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been talking about institutions. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the rule of law, and, mm-hmm. um, and but you and Deirdre uh, have sort of pushed a little mm-hmm. bit to 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 that mm-hmm. storyline and said, well, you know, it's, but but why I, mm-hmm. I, isn't is is this correct? What you're really saying is, yeah, that's all very fine, but mm-hmm. why? Yeah, why did did property rights suddenly become mm-hmm. so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did we start thinking that mm-hmm. way? Why did we start thinking that we need to protect property rights? Yeah. And and that's that's what you're about. Right. So so when we think about institutions, yeah. um, and I, I it, it, in my heart of hearts, institutions matter. Um, but things like property rights and the rule of law, we argue, are, are necessary but not sufficient for the great enrichment that we saw over the last couple of, or the last three or so centuries. So <clears throat> you have to have private property rights and you have to have the rule of law in the same way that you have to have oxygen to have fire. But just because you have oxygen doesn't mean you're gonna have fire. Just because you have property rights and the rule of law doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to get long run economic growth. Um, and indeed we've had relatively secure property rights in the West for many centuries. And we've had a relatively well-functioning rule of law for a very, very long time. And, and again, the, we have to have these. Like it, We can't mm. not have property rights and not have a rule of law and still have economic growth. But we need, we need something else to really light the fire and set things going. And for uh, in the argument that we're making, it's economic liberty and social dignity for entrepreneurs and innovators saying, okay, yeah, sure, you, you can you can try new things without having to ask anybody's permission. There's a, a fantastic book by a scholar. Couldn't that be deduced directly from property rights? Um, I own this property. I own mm-hmm. these tools. I can do with them whatever I want, and whatever I produce out of it uh, is mine, and I can sell it to uh, you know it's fr- mm-hmm. freedom of transaction and all that. Isn't it all deducible directly from the uh, axioms of uh, economic freedom? Maybe. Maybe. Um, well, so you can have secure property rights, but you can also have pathological property rights in a sense too. Uh, and here we might be using we might be using the phrase a little bit differently. So, for example, the way that the guilds worked in the early, the way the guilds worked in the medieval period, is you had a property right to a particular market. Yeah. Like you and the guild, yeah. you had a property right to the like taxi medallions. Right. Yeah. Or something yeah. Yeah. Like taxi medallions. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that that is very much a property right. And, it is. And yeah. it was a secure property right. Yeah. Um, and and the the development of ride sharing, like, and in many uh, ways, the, the yeah. person who, who has bought that taxi mm-hmm. medallion should be compensated if we suddenly change the rules. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, some people would argue no. Um, I, I would say as as a matter as a matter of cosmic justice, I don't think so. Like, I don't think you deserve to be compensated because oh. uh, because the rules changed. It, especially if, if you have a property right you shouldn't have to begin with. As a matter of practical politics. 
I think it's it's pretty clear. Yeah, you do need to compensate people if the rules change. Interesting, um, right? Uh, but that's that's a that's a that's a, a fairly fine distinction. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah, I, I would be much. I I would like instead of prohibiting ride sharing, say I think it would be much better for the government to just buy tax buy all the taxi medallions. Okay, now now everybody can compete. I, I'm going to buy your taxi medallion for, from you, so you're now made whole. Everything's yeah. everything's wonderful. And um, as a similar, you could have a similar idea for farm subsidies, right? right? Yeah. Uh, you know, protection mm-hmm. uh, of certain industries yeah. that have been going on for decades, mm-hmm. and everybody has invested according to that. Right. You you could argue. I would tend to argue. You disagree that uh, they have. You have an expectation. Mm-hmm. That this, these are the mm-hmm. rules, and you have no reason to think that they're going right. to be changed. Mm-hmm. And you know what are you going to do? You might even dislike the rules, but think, mm-hmm. well, you know, but these are the rules, so I'll yeah. I'll invest according to those. And suddenly you change the rules, right? And and your investment might go from you know ten mm-hmm. million dollars to zero, right? Uh, is that fair? I would argue compensation would mm-hmm. be. Um, You know, fair. Um, so that, oh, that's a bad word. It would be well, yeah. So, so um, that's yeah. I, I tell I tell my I try to tell my students like there are three four letter F words you are not allowed to not allowed to use I in just my classes. Use one right? of them. Oh, Feel free and fair. Um, okay, uh, but yeah. So, so when I think about it, it's sort of as a matter of abstract philosophy or like just. what what, yeah, what does justice require? Right. Like I don't think that justice requires compensation. So I, I use subsidies for higher education. In the United States, for example, which I love subsidies for higher education because they all go directly into my pocket. Um, if we were to get rid of those subsidies, that would substantially reduce my standard of living, presumably. Um, it's not clear to me that I'm really owed anything. Uh, again, in in, some, in 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 as a matter of abstract justice, I've been doing a lot of work recently on the South. But African- your sunk cost is mainly human right. capital, yeah, which you can transition into something else. Yeah. It, it what would, if what if you'd also built your own uh, office uh, at the university right. and and all yeah. that, and that suddenly goes to zero? Would you feel the same way? Uh, I, I would like I would like to think I would like to think that <laughs> that as, again as a matter of cosmic justice, I'm not owed anything. If if the if the benefits I'm getting are basically my right to pick somebody else's pocket, which is basically what subsidies are. Um, I've been doing a lot of work recently, though, on the South African economist W.H. Hutt, who uh, spent a lot of time and energy talking about transition away from racist institutions in South Africa. And in the 1940s, he wrote this really interesting book uh, called Plan for Reconstruction, where he laid out his idea for liberalizing Britain after World War II, and something he kept emphasizing and emphasizing and emphasizing is exactly the point you're making, is you have to honor established expectations. You have to honor established expectations, in part because you you're going to need to get people to go along with the transition. Right. Okay. So yeah. So so as a matter as a matter of cosmic abstract justice, maybe I'm not owed anything if we get rid of of, of education subsidies. But if you tell the entire professoriate in entire professoriate around the world, we're going to quit subsidizing higher education, and too bad, then you're you're going to have to expect some resistance. Right. So, so so for Hut for Hut as a matter of practical politics, and I, I'm willing to willing to go along with this as well. Okay, it's and he he said he said in in many cases we might have to actually swallow hard and accept some very serious injustice. But in the very long run, the additional economic growth we get more than pays for it. 
So just to use the example of racist institutions, which is is something he spent his entire career criticizing. Um, uh, for, so apartheid in South Africa, one of the one of the rules that they had was that that blacks were specifically prohibited from having certain jobs. Yeah, and and like like no human being on earth, I would like to think, says that that's okay. Um, and I doubt anybody would would really say that somebody who who's uh, who's white and works in mining, and they owe their high income to the fact that they're that blacks are literally not allowed to 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 compete with them, would say that someone who's who is is hurt by by the the abolition of racist institutions really has a big claim. What Hutt says, and Hutt says, okay, yeah, sure, we might find it morally noxious to think that we have to buy off people who are currently benefiting from racism, but it's a small price to pay, or at least it's it's a worthwhile price to pay to make this transition more quickly and to make it without, uh, without the possibility of violence. Mm. And so. now we're back to the example of the mm. local shop right. that charges very high prices mm -hmm. Because Walmarts have not been allowed, right, and that's their taxi medallion. Yes, and yeah. to what extent uh, mm -hmm. are they righteous? Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, to what extent is it not fair, but just that that mm -hmm. they should keep that privilege, um, on uh, to, at the expense of everybody living in that right. area? What I would love to see. Um, in, in my perfect world, the way that we would handle this would be to say, because I'm, I'm virtually certain, I know that uh, Danish land use regulations are, are a big part of what keeps really big stores like Walmart out of the country. Um, I am almost certain that if you go to Netto or you go to, to Aldi or you go to any, any store and ask, what are the regulations that you hate? Or, you're, or how much do you love paying taxes? You're probably going to get a, a, like a long list of things that people wish would go away. I would love to see the compensation come in the form of reductions in other regulations and reductions in tax burdens and things like that. So, uh, rather, so rather than, say, making a cash payment to, some, to somebody, uh, to, to a, an incumbent that would be hurt by the entry of Walmart or, or somebody else, say, we're going to get rid of this, this huge stack of regulations and rules and things like that mm. that – that are prohibiting you from doing business the way you know you can do business. And I think that would be an improvement for everybody. But yeah. uh, that's, and, that's and, yeah, as a matter and, of practical politics, that's... Uh, interesting. It, yeah. it is one theory about how to, to mm -hmm. achieve sort of yeah. free market change is right. to, to bundle a lot of it together yes. mm -hmm. uh, into one big package. So right. there's something for everyone mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that, is, that is a little harmful. You know, mm -hmm. basically... Uh, flipping the the mm -hmm. um, uh, the logic of right. concentrated uh, yeah. of, of, of yeah. uh, con concentrated benefits and and uh, mm -hmm. dispersed costs, yeah. uh, fl flipping that logic around so that there's a huge package where you get a lot of small mm -hmm. benefits everywhere, and right. together they add up to something that's mm -hmm. actually worth. The, the cost that, that is being yep. put on you there. Mm -hmm. And and if anything's taken out, you'll go, wait, wait, wait. Mm -hmm. If you take that out, I need this one to be taken out as well. So right. you need to keep it all in for it to to happen. Yeah. I would, think, I, are, you, are there any examples that, that you know of, of of big reforms that have... Oh, I think Australia did something similar to that. Yeah, I, I don't remember the details. Oh. Um, anyway. Yeah. An interesting discussion. Now, regulation is... Mm -hmm. is um, um, there's bad and there's good regulation the way the way I think about mm -hmm. it, you know, and and we've uh, property rights is mm -hmm. a kind of regulation. You yeah. know, you 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 enforce, mm -hmm. uh, you protect and you uh, enforce property rights mm -hmm. and contract contracts and things. 
what it, what what are the good regulations in your opinion? Uh, that that's in, pretty in much it. I, that's I pretty would, much yeah, it. Yeah, I would say having having a legal system, a legal system that protects property rights and mm. that provides people with, with secure continuity of expectations right. is pretty much it. There, there, there's really not a whole lot that a regulatory state can do that, that consumer markets, protection, consumer protection, similar story. So for example, one of the, uh, um, <clears throat> so when I travel, a lot of times I'll buy something for my kids. Right. And, and I, I bought, I remember years ago. And in fact, I bought one of these from my trip here. You can get these little, like they're like Legos, Little airplanes, but they're they're made by a different company, and they're terrible. They're so bad. I remember putting one of these together and just being so disappointed. Um, and this is this is a perfect example, or this is a good example because you know when you buy Lego and like real Lego, they, they have so much invested in their brand name and so much invested in in knowing the kind of quality that you're going to get. This is a really really powerful, a uh, really really powerful mechanism that protects consumers. You know that if you're buying, you know that if you're buying something that says Lego on it, then you can expect a pretty high quality product. And if you don't get the high quality product, then they're going to take care of you. If you buy something from a, a uh, I don't want to get sued. So, so uh, knockoff Lego um, and it's terrible. Then, Private label Lego. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Then, then, then you, you, okay, you, you paid, you paid a lot less but you also you, uh, you knew what you were getting for the most so part. So what's the point? The branding uh, yeah. does, does the job. Yeah, you br- don't, yeah. Brand you, names. You don't brand need... names do the work. Brand names do the work. I um, so for example, I ate dinner at McDonald's last night, which is probably not a not a good idea in its own right. But um, I, I don't. I, I know I you'll get a better dinner tonight. That's the hope. That's the hope. <laughs> um, I knew when I went in, I didn't. I didn't go in and ask for you know. Give me all your health regulation paperwork and things like that because I don't read Danish anyway. Um, I knew just by virtue of mm. seeing the sign, like I knew more or less what I was going to get. I knew it was going to, I knew it was going to taste pretty good, and it was going to be reasonably cheap. And but are if if yeah. I start up a shop, mm-hmm. sure, and uh, I think I just want to make some mm-hmm. quick money, mm-hmm. and I can actually make quite a lot by mm-hmm. che- by cheating a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if I'm just cheating people. Oh, 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 of a few dollars or mm-hmm. Danish krona or whatever, it's mm-hmm. it's not a big deal. Right. But you know, if if it's harmful to their health or mm-hmm. if they're buying something that's actually more expensive, and they, they I, I, you know, I I could even pretend to be mm-hmm. uh, Lego. Right. I guess you have regulation there yeah. that, that that's that's warranted. Uh, but but you know, even if I don't, if I'm just saying, well, I have the shop and, and I'm selling this to you, and 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 you get sick from mm-hmm. from, wouldn't most people would say? I want some kind of protection yeah. to to make sure that this doesn't happen. Yeah. So um, so first, the, so here I appeal to Thomas Sowell, who famously says repeatedly, like, "There are no solutions; there are only trade offs." Right. And it, in an imperfect world full of imperfect people, you're going to end up with you're going to have at least some horrible stuff. Uh, I guess the question is what what sets of institutions minimize all of this? Um, <clears throat> an interesting question I, I don't really know the answer to is the market for actually fake Lego. So, yeah, so so before I before I left, my I, I sat down with my ten year old, and he talked about how he, he has a bunch of fake Lego, and I said, what, what, oh. "Well, how do you know?" Whoa. And he said, "Well, if you look at apparently, like if, if you look at these particular parts of the pieces, it's got Lego written on it, really, 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 really tiny." And so he gave me this this little master class in how to identify real and fake Lego, um, 
and and I don't know necessarily why there is apparently such a big thick market for mm. for fake Lego. And like you can go on Amazon, for example, you can buy. Uh, if you're not careful about it, you can buy a bunch of a bunch of Space Wars minifigures, mm. which look exactly like Star Wars, but they're. Do, do you think not Lego awesome. should be cap- should be able to go after those and I, say, "Look, guys, that's you're infringing on our copyright uh, patents or whatever." Yeah, that's a that's a that's a good <laughs> question. There, there's a lot of um, th- there's a lot of debate about about the the, the role of intellectual property. Um, there, I don't really know. I am th- I, I'm. I'm skeptical of well there's something to be said for going after somebody for copyright infringement when it when it seems very very clear that they what they're selling is is they're trying to pass off as the real thing like that that strikes me as fraudulent um i don't know necessarily why amazon doesn't crack down on this uh which for the most part amazon does they're the amazon ebay walmart etc they tend to be very very good about Policing their own sites and policing their own areas. Mm. Um, yeah, that's just one example of it. Of what I think is is a seemingly a, a conspicuous failure. But um, I'm not sure that creating a, a <clears throat> government level bureau of Lego authenticity <laughs> would would solve more problems than it creates. And I, I'd, be, I'd be very interested. I'd be very interested too. This is just something I, I haven't taken the time to look into. So how does Lego handle this? How do they yeah. deal with? How do they deal with the existence? No, of but I'm not costs. talking specifically <clears throat> right. about Lego. I'm talking right, about yeah. you know that kind of regulation because you're, right. you're saying that's more or less it. But you know, okay, <clears throat> that that gives yeah. gives the listener and and viewers <clears throat> a, an idea of mm-hmm. uh, you're a very yeah. free market guy, right? Yeah. And and yeah. and I would argue that that um, moving towards more mm-hmm. regulation from that mm-hmm. position. Uh, in the beginning, there mm-hmm. there is an argument for right. a lot of the stuff, yeah. but there's also an argument against. Mm-hmm. And then, as you move on and on and on, it becomes yeah. clearer mm-hmm. and clearer that mm-hmm. this is this is mostly harmful. Right? Uh, yeah. Do you agree with that? I do, uh, and I think when when you think about consumer product safety regulation, um, there, there's there's imagining how this would work in a perfect world. And then right. there's how it actually works in the real world we inhabit, and yeah. the two things are very the very nirvana different. fallacy. Right. You say, well, right. let, let's let's imagine that we can regulate the yeah. world in a perfect way. Yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, that would, I guess, you could argue that it'd be right. nice, but but it's not. That's not what happens. You you get imperfect regulation. And then importantly, importantly, fly by night operations tend not to really be able to charge high prices, and they're probably not going to be as profitable over the long run as as established firms or as, as places that establish good brand names. So, um, for example, you think about staying in a hotel that's not, so this is the development of chain stores, for example, in the United States happened in part because a guy named Kemmons Wilson realized that when you're driving across the country and you pull into a hotel or a restaurant and you have out of state license plates, that's just a giant sign saying, rip me off. Right. Um, he realized that if you, if you create a chain of hotels and he, he created holiday Inn such that you see the sign and you know more or less what you're going to get, that's a transaction cost reducer. Um, <clears throat> off, it, it's important to remember as a consumer, a deal that looks too good to be true almost certainly is too good to be true. And um, it's true that you're often t- you're taking a risk, but in a, in, a, in a big sense, you're being compensated for that risk in the form of a lower price. So uh, I think that brand names are much better regulators than uh, officials yeah. in Copenhagen or Washington, <coughs> D.C. And 
Um, but you could argue that people are risk averse and they, right. they, they don't yeah. they don't want to risk it, right. uh, yeah. and it's it's nicer mm. to have the government. Yeah. And then whenever you go to a hotel, you know for sure that you know, yeah. blah blah blah. Well, it's, uh, it's, but, it's but, nice but, but to there, think that there are, there, are, there are costs right. to that. Yeah. And as you as you move along the sort mm. of uh, mm. the, the the spectrum of mm. of regulation towards more right. and more nanny state type yeah. regulation, it gets more and more serious. Mm. Why is uh, um, how can innovation, uh, sorry, how can regulation harm innovation, productivity, and growth? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, a lot of times just because the, so I've written an article called, uh, called The Extent of the Market is, li is Limited by the Imagination of the Regulator. So Adam Smith writes, the, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. The extent of the market is limited by the by the imagination of the regulator because there's so much stuff in the world and so many innovations that happen that are not what we normally would have just thought about. No, I, I wasn't thinking when I was sitting in college in 1998. You know, I really <clears throat> wish I had an iPhone. Uh, none of us were thinking that. Um, <clears throat> Steve Jobs and and the folks at Apple said, you know, I bet we could do this and it would work really, 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 really well. Um, we weren't. We didn't have a, a Facebook. I don't shape. think Steve Jobs, when he invented it, knew what it was going to no, be used for. No, 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 not at all. In fact, when when they rolled out the iPad in, in 2010, I remember a lot of journalists saying, "Well, what is this for?" Hmm. And Steve Jobs, I don't think Steve Jobs knew. It was just here's something that we think we that, that we think has some serious possibilities. Yeah. Um, it's it's easy to think. I remember that, when the Internet of Things just came yeah. out. Uh, mm -hmm. There were these futurists and others mm -hmm. who were saying, okay, what is this going to be used right. for? And there's this guy in Denmark who, who, who said, well, you know, uh, imagine that you have your scale and you mm -hmm. step on it and, and you're too, it turns out you, you put on some weight mm -hmm. and the scale sends a signal to your fridge uh, that you shouldn't buy any right. any ice cream or mm -hmm. butter. And I, I just thought, who'd want that? <laughs> Who on earth would want your scale to decide? I would. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I probably. Yeah, yeah. A lot of Americans, I would think. It, it's uh, no, but uh, it, you know, it's it's an example of yeah. what can you think of, mm -hmm. and and as as it turns out, now mm -hmm. it's it's becoming all kinds of other things. Yeah. But but you know, it it when this thing starts, you have an idea. A vague idea of what it could be used to, mm -hmm. and you could give some examples, mm -hmm. and they're not very good, and yeah. and then it revolutionizes something completely mm -hmm. different. It's always like that with invention, yeah. isn't it? Well, and I hate to I hate to bring up this specific example because it, it's it's it sounds like I'm just sort of complaining, but a few years ago, my wife tried to start a business making fermented foods uh, right, in, okay. in Birmingham, and so she made kimchi, which is a Korean yeah. fermented cabbage, and so she went to the health department because she needed she needed health the permission from the health department. So she could get a business license, so that she could produce the stuff in in Birmingham, and so she went to the health department and said, "Okay, what is kimchi?" So this is this is right. this is like the this is the brilliant irony of it all is presumably we have the regulators there to protect consumers from unscrupulous business people, but the regulators themselves didn't know what the product was, and then my wife ended up giving up because it was just it just became too much of a nightmare to try to deal with with. Uh, with, lo with local regulators and regulation, right. <clears throat> um, they can stand in the way. They can stand in the way of of, of innovation because first they're going to tend to have they're going to tend to have um, limited imagination. Not because they're stupid people or anything like that, but just because everybody's got limited imagination. And second, they're going to tend to have really bad incentives. So the incentive for a regulator is to be way too cautious. There are a couple of mistakes that a regulator can. Um, can make when they're thinking about something like food or drugs or what have you, 
And that is to approve a drug that is unsafe or to prohibit a drug that is safe or to uh, uh, approve, a dr- approve a food that's unsafe or prohibit a food, that, or prohibit a food that's safe. Mm. It's a major problem with the Food and Drug Administration <coughs> in the United States. And one of the reasons why drugs are so expensive in the U.S. is because <clears throat> all of the incentives for FDA regulators are to prevent – uh, prevent the approval of safe drugs, because if you let a bad drug through, then someone you've got a body, or you've got people who are dead. Maybe you've got people crying on TV, etc. And and you've got newspapers saying, okay, who's to blame? Who let this bad drug get through? So um, then you get blamed, and you suffer some very very serious professional consequences. If you if you fail to approve a good drug. The consequences may just may be just as bad, yeah. but they're a lot a harder hun- to see. A hundred times worse. Yeah, or a hundred times worse. Yeah, but yeah, but they're, they're a hundred people to see. die that could have right. gotten that drug. Yeah, but right. who, who, that's the unseen, isn't right. it? Yeah, that Bastiat. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, um, so, so regulators tend to be way too cautious because they don't have any skin in the game. Right. And I think we, we see the relationship between the FDA and drug development is 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 an ex- a great example in the United States. One of the major problems um, – <clears throat> so I, I've been saying that uh, when I get back to the U.S., I'll talk about having visited this free market paradise that is Denmark. <laughs> um, and part of it is is apparently is – in, in many European countries, it's a lot easier to get drugs developed and drugs approved than it is in the U.S., um, it's a lot easier. Well, it's funny. I, I looked at I looked at data on retail regulation because uh, it's guess part of what I'm here to talk about. And, and retail regulation in the United States is, is stricter than retail regulation in Denmark. The, the land use planning rules notwithstanding. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, regulators regulators tend to be way too cautious. Yeah, and they tend to think uh, they tend to think in terms of scary scenarios. So another example is is ride sharing. So Uber and Lyft in the United States, um, when when that was being debated in Birmingham, there were, of course, all these questions about, well, you don't, uh, about about whether or not it was safe. And everyone on city council talking about safety and and somebody said, well, you have no idea who who you're getting in a car with. And um, and what I tell my students is if, if you're a serial killer, I can think of no worse way to be a serial killer than to try to drive for, drive rideshare, drive for Uber or Lyft, uh-huh. because everything's being tracked in real time with GPS. If I if I'm a, if I'm a rider, I've got a I've got a picture of the person who's supposed to be picking me up, the a picture of the car, the license plate of the car, the en- enormous amount of information. It would be a very very easy crime to solve. Locked up within ten minutes. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, if, if I were to if I were to disappear, then then <laughs> the amount of information they have to go on is simply uh, staggering. Uh, so uh, it's it's funny that Uber and Lyft in the U.S. are, I think, way more trustworthy than the officially regulated taxi cabs. Yeah, and and you have all these amazing examples of people sending their children, yeah. uh, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. to an aunt to to mm-hmm. to stay the night or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, in an Uber or Lyft yeah. or or um, I think it was Russ Roberts who had mm-hmm. uh, this example in his uh, Econ Talk uh, mm-hmm. podcast of, of, of this guy who who had on him, uh, you know, the, 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 he, he went from I think he went from Washington to New York and 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 the driver said, "Why aren't you taking the train?" He said, "Well, because I have these very." very expensive uh, jewels I think it was on him oh wow and, and uh, I just don't dare but uh, and, and and the driver says well you aren't f- 
you aren't afraid that I might steal uh-huh. a note because uh, you know I know who you are. Right? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because because yeah, because if you steal these, you'll get a one star rating, and you, you, you're not gonna you know, that, that's that's gonna hurt your earning potential. No, but not so, not yeah. only that. I mean, you, you could probably live off that forever, but but he'd get caught. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he has he, he has tracked who's with. Yes, uh, and mm-hmm. and that's the safest place for him to be yeah. with all that value on him mm-hmm. is in an Uber or, yeah. or Lyft uh, car. Now that's amazing. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess um, there's a lot of regulation that um, um, that you can improve, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, uh, they're, they're sort of first. Be- your first best might mm-hmm. be no regulation, right? Um, and other sort of more uh, less. Mm-hmm. Liberal or less libertarian, more classical liberal, mm-hmm. or moving down to, towards social mm-hmm. liberal people might say, "Well, you know, I want some re- regulation, but I want it to be in a way that doesn't harm innovation." Right. Yeah. Uh, can Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, different ways of handling regulation yeah. so that it doesn't harm innovation and markets as much. Yeah. So the, there's a there's a lot of low hanging fruit to be picked. Um, one of the things that so for example the OECD. Um, is producing guidelines or best practices for for regulation. And one of the things that OECD says is is that regulation should have sunset provisions so that uh, after a certain number of years, a regulation automatically expires and it has to be renewed. And I think that would be a fantastic way to uh, improve the quality of regulation in the United States and elsewhere, just to say- Is that actually an OECD recommendation, sunset clauses? It, It is, unless I read the document incorrectly, Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. Well, so there's a they had a, a piece recently on. I'd, I'd on, love to see that. Okay. Maybe we can we can link to it in show notes. Yeah. And, and yeah. Do some uh, work on it a, a, That's interesting. Uh, they have a fantastic report on indicators of product market regulation, and, and in fact, they um, they refer to France uh, having more sunset more sunset rules for regulations, and as being an example of <clears> of, of a serious improvement. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I become more and more. Uh, more and more enthusiastic about piecemeal reform rather than sort of like wholesale revolution. Uh, you know, sort of the older I get, and the more I the more I understand that um, you know, not everybody. Have you ever been in favor of revolution? Right? Really? Well, I mean, not not, not violent revolution. But yeah, <laughs> thinking like if, if I could push if I could push a button and get rid of the state, then probably. But oh, okay. Uh, uh, yeah, I think sunset provisions would be would be a really yeah. really really good way to do it. Shall issue. Rules. So, for example, um, again, thinking about my my wife's experience with the health department, I would love for regulation to be. Uh, I would love for for the rule to be not that not that somebody has to prove to the regulator that what they're doing is safe, but that they're allowed to do it no matter what. And it's and the the burden of proof is on the regulator to show that they should be stopped. So she needs to inform the regulator that. I'm now doing this, right. mm-hmm. and then they can look at it, yeah. and uh, they can come back and and have to prove why this is. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I guess another approach would be to say that uh, we consider food regulation mm-hmm. in uh, you know a number of countries mm-hmm. that are similar to ours. You know, mm-hmm. kimchi is c- yeah. that's South Korea, isn't right. it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a wealthy country. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they they probably have re- decent food regulation. If it's mm-hmm. legal there, it's by it's automatically also legal yes. here. So stuff like that, right? Yeah, and that, that's another fantastic example. I know a lot of people in the United States and various other places have proposed that if if it's been approved somewhere, then it should be then it you should be allowed to do it in the U.S. Right. So, for example, a lot of uh, a lot of drugs, for example, that are approved in Europe that are not approved in the U.S. or um, 
pasteurized versus unpasteurized cheese is a big thing. We, we, we don't have the same culinary selection in the U.S. that, that a lot of European countries have because of, of the way that cheese is regulated. Um, <clears throat> Uh, saying, I would think about, I would think about for historic my, reasons. I'm pretty right. sure all these French yeah. cheeses would would not be allowed in France if it wasn't for the fact that they had been allowed when regulation started. That's probably you know? that's probably if, a good if, point. If, if yeah. somebody invented yeah. the Camembert now, they go, oh, geez, they're all full of <laughs> and the, the, pro, right. yeah. the whole yeah. process yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, um, I would like to see. I would like to see too. Um, oh, what was I thinking? French cheese regulation. Um, oh yeah. So, uh, specifically with respect to medicine and the practice of medicine. So this is a, again, another area in the United States, especially where there's a lot of restrictions on entry. So the American medical association meet, uh, has made it so that there are far fewer doctors than there would otherwise be. And someone who is trained in a medical school that's not AMA approved in say Denmark or Sri Lanka or somewhere, somewhere else cannot practice medicine in the United States. And that's crazy. Mm. Uh, I remember reading a, uh, an article about a doctor trained, I want to say trained in Sri Lanka or somewhere uh, who delivers pizzas in the US. And this is an incredible waste of resources. I think if, if you have a medical license in one place, you should be allowed to practice Somewhere else, and that's very specific mm -hmm. to the to the healthcare sector right. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Isn't yeah. it? I, I had a conversation mm -hmm. with uh, Michael Cannon from mm -hmm. the Cato Institute uh, about U.S. healthcare mm -hmm. uh, recently, and we can link to that. And and he we spoke specifically about that. That in mm -hmm. in, in Denmark, I mean, nurses from Norway and Sweden and mm -hmm. all over the European Union really can come to Denmark. Obviously, for some countries, there's a language issue, but mm -hmm. but but a nurse can come and practice here in Denmark. Doctors mm -hmm. can, can can come and practice here. Uh, we have an internal market mm -hmm. for for that, but you don't even internally in the right. U.S. Right. have an internal market. A nurse from one mm -hmm. state can't go right. and become a nurse in a, in another state, not directly anyway. Right. So uh, so there are so, so there's that's very specific mm -hmm. for the healthcare sector as you're the country of immigration, but but immigration of doctors are not welcome. That's, well, it's, well it's, as it's long like, as they work as pizza delivery men instead. <laughs> well, and even then, even then, maybe not. Uh, it's also true of, of education and a lot of other things. So, so whenever we have, um, so when, so there are a lot of natural disasters in the U.S. So for uh, along the, in the southern United States, we get a lot of hurricanes, and there's always, always, always controversy. So whenever a hurricane hits Florida or Louisiana or something like that, about whether or not carpenters and people in the skilled trades from like Massachusetts should be allowed to come and ply their trade in Louisiana or Florida where they don't have licenses. Oh, so it's not yeah. just the medical profession. Not just the medical it's profession. Actually, okay. So um, is it almost all professions or is it, is it uh, you know, a, a yeah, few? It, pretty much all professions. I think if you... Wow. Yeah, I think you have to be... So I went to graduate school in St. Louis, which is right on the border of, of Missouri and Illinois. And a lot of lawyers would be, they would take both the Missouri bar exam and the Illinois bar exam. So they'd be members of the Missouri bar and the Illinois bar. I don't think they would be allowed to practice in Tennessee or Alabama or somewhere else if they're not, if they're not members of those particular state bars. But I guess state laws can be different. Right. So, so yep. there's some reason mm -hmm. for that. But, 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 you know, carpentry is... Similar thing. Yeah, yeah. If you but, don't have... Um, yeah, there are a lot of places that have location specific licensing. So for example, so if you have a, a carpentry license, say, or a flower arranging license in Louisiana, then that may not travel across state lines. Uh -huh. 
Um, it might not be too hard to get because a new license. Because wood in Michigan is, is uh, you know, radically different from wood in Louisiana. Right, yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and they're, they're always, they're always going to be um, at least semi-plausible arguments for it. So think about cosmetology, for example. Mm. Um, we pay way too much for haircuts. And I don't think cosmetology licenses, I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think cosmetology licenses travel very well across state lines. And a lot of times people might say, oh, well, you're working with chemicals and you're working with sharp objects and whatnot. But again, cutting hair is cutting hair. Uh, yeah. Uh, one, of, one of my 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 favorite examples of this was um, <clears throat> you know, years ago, I went, to, I went to get a haircut and I hadn't shaved. And I remember watching old episodes of the Andy Griffith show and like Floyd the Barber shaving people. And so I asked the, the person behind the chair, if, what would it cost for a shave? And he said, oh, I can't do that. So I have a cosmetology license. I don't have a barbering license. So okay. since he didn't have a barbering license, he couldn't shave customers. And it's weird because like he could, he could run a, a straight razor along the back of my neck. But he would not have been allowed to run that same straight razor across the front of my face. And it just it's... This is 100% to restrict entry, keep prices high. And um, again, like I said, I would love to see, I'd love to see more interjurisdictional competition, oh, excuse me, not competition, say call it regulatory cooperation, where if someone is, if someone has a license to cut hair in Denmark, yes. then they can go anywhere they want in the United States and do the same thing. Yeah. Or start out even in, in the US. Right. I yep. mean, and yep. that would help uh, a lot of people and, and have the same mm -hmm. kind of effect as your Walmart example. Yep. It right. would drive down prices. Mm -hmm. It would, mm -hmm. that would increase real wages yes. because, you know, wages are, real wages are mm -hmm. a, a product of what you actually earn and what mm -hmm. you can buy from it. Right. Uh, and uh, people would have more disposable income for mm -hmm. other endeavors than getting a haircut or whatever it is. And, right. and that would help people into employment and, mm -hmm. and create wealth. And, Uh, and those kinds of processes. Yeah. Well, so, and that's, some, that's something I think about when I think about what, what would I do more of if my money went further? And, and one of the things I would do more frequently is probably get more haircuts. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that, that's a small thing, but you create, but if you take 330 million people in the United States and everybody gets a few more haircuts every year, that's, that's, a, lot of, that's a lot of additional work for people cutting hair. Yeah, um, so sure. it's, it's, So what, what might look at a very, very small, or in, in the context of say like one individual, what may, what may not look like much is added up across a much, much larger population can end up being something fairly substantial. Yeah, and all, all these things we've been talking about now are small examples. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you take mm -hmm. the total code that regulates mm -hmm. business in the right. US or, or in Denmark, in Denmark mm -hmm. at least, we, here at CEPOS, we count the, mm -hmm. the number of words mm -hmm. in regulation, yeah. like they also do at, I think, the Makita Center yeah. and other mm -hmm. places uh, in the US. And it's a similar picture. It grows by a couple of percentage points, mm -hmm. maybe 3% some years, yeah. every year. And that adds up to over a lifetime that is a 20-fold increase yes. in the total right. amount of regulation mm -hmm. if if you assume that the number of words are, are directly uh, are one-to-one -one with right. the, the amount of regulation probably is they probably don't stick words yeah, they're, they're very highly <laughs> they've got to be very highly correlated it, uh, it's not all poems in there right, you know yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. Uh, you must or you can't yes. or whatever it, uh, yeah um and um And business regulation, most of it will, to some extent, have this effect of, oh, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and, you know, innovators uh, will um, 
end up in a situation where, where like your wife, mm. I would like to produce, I'd like to try mm. this new thing, yeah. but I'm not, you know, sometimes it's, okay, I, I know that mm. it's not legal and, and I mm. have to persuade them first. In other cases, it will be, mm. I don't know if this is legal. Right, yeah. You know, yeah. the uncertainty of the regulation. What mm. is it actually saying? How would you interpret this? How would a court or mm. how would the authorities interpret this? And you need a lawyer to look at mm. it. And sometimes the lawyers, I, I speak to lawyers who say, Quite frankly, often I, mm-hmm. I tell my clients I don't have a clue right. if, if what they, they are considering doing is legal. And then yeah. I tell them you probably shouldn't. Yeah, um, I, I think about this when I think about possible entrepreneurial endeavors. I think, oh, maybe yeah. I should start this or start that. I, I'll then think, okay, well, do I do I want to go to the headache of dealing with the regulation? Do I want to go to the headache of of possibly <clears throat> doing something illegal and not finding out that it's illegal until you know, a couple of, until I'm, I'm halfway into starting the business? Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of uncertainty. So, so we, we've talked about, we've talked about, uh, expectations. And, uh, when, when I look at building regulations and things like that, a lot of times you can get a, so in the U S or in Birmingham specifically, you can get a waiver on particular regulations at the discretion of the person in charge of this office or that office or the other office. And so that in a lot of ways undermines the rule of law because it makes, yes. uh, it, it makes a lot of, a lot of questions about what you can and can't do strictly at the discretion of whoever happens to be in office at the time. Yes. And, and that's, and, a, that's and, you know, a if it was a different, if, if you came, <clears throat> if, if you came a year earlier right. or a year later, it might be someone else yeah. who, who might have ruled differently mm-hmm. right. on, on that. And that's not the rule of law. That's, right. that's Absolutely. something completely different. Absolutely. So yeah. do you think this whole, let's wrap up with this. Sure. Uh, do, do you see a risk that this development towards more and more regulation mm-hmm. uh, is, threatening the bourgeois deal uh not just yeah. the deal itself mm-hmm. but 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 the values the mm-hmm. bourgeois values that 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 are behind yeah. the society we're living in uh, yeah i don't think it's a threat or a risk i think it's, it's something that's actually happening um there's there's pretty substantial evidence that regulation in the last 50 years or so has, has, has slowed down economic growth so again we think about the, the rise of the regulatory state in the united states and europe in the 1970s this was something that, that substantially reduced economic growth and, and overall prosperity. And the more the more we move in this direction of having to ask permission for everything we do, the more we treat responsible adults like their children. And the more we the, the, the more we we create a culture of of asking permission, more of a culture of saying if it's not explicitly permitted, it's prohibited. And more of a culture of, frankly, um, frankly, spying on one another, and trying to find trying to find ways to to, to rat out our neighbors for doing something wrong. Uh, <clears throat> just a, another example, or our competitors, right? Or our competitors, right? Right. Just another example. Uh, I know in in <clears throat> a lot of places in the U.S., when you ride a bike, you're required to wear a helmet, and on on one of the local social media apps. Um, uh, People were complaining about our son. It's like, who's this kid who's riding around? His parents aren't around, and he's riding around without a helmet, and blah 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 blah. And so, first of all, he's a couple of blocks from the house. Second, he he can take care of himself. And third, it's just um, if it weren't for these if it weren't for these helmet rules and regulations, and, it, and this is just a just an example. Like, what what reason would other people in the neighborhood have to be, frankly? Getting into our kids' business, mm. um, I think we 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 become a a we become a society of of distrustful snitches, 
the more regulation, the more rules that we have. Uh, and I, I don't think that's something that is is appropriate for a free people. Mm, okay. Uh, you know, on on the other hand, if it was just a concern, you know, mm -hmm. if, if if you think, yeah, if your neighbor thinks mm -hmm. a child needs should yeah. should wear a helmet, right, yeah, um, and shows concern and mm -hmm. goes, wait a minute, who who is this child? You yeah. know, should we uh, alert the parents yeah. or, or whatever? Wouldn't that be a civil society thing? Yeah, there there, there is there's a certain amount of that, obviously. Um, <clears throat> and in this particular case, they said, well, we think he lives in this house over here, and they, they were talking about our house. I said, well, okay, great. If you, if you are concerned, come knock on the door, introduce in, yourself instead of throwing it out right, on social yeah, media. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, I agree. That's that's not yeah. the way to go about that. Yeah, and on and we do want to take care of each other, obviously. And you're right, that is a that is an, a, an example of civil society. But I think. Mm. Um, you know, what if it was at night and and yeah. your your child had forgotten to put on the lights mm -hmm. on on his bike and somebody rides by in a car and, go, and goes, "Hey, young man, you yeah. know, remember the lights." Right. Um, there's also an argument for oh, you. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, next yeah, time yeah. I might I might actually drive into you, and I don't want oh, that. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I don't want right. to, to to you know experience mm -hmm. and having that on my conscience. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, and and that's that's very different though. That's that's. Uh, is it? I mean, he could well, also I drive think, into the to, to 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 the boy wearing a helmet, and he he, if he'd had the helmet mm -hmm. on, uh, he'd be fine. Ah, and okay. So okay, so this is this is fascinating for for a couple of reasons. One, um, not being able to see somebody at night, I think, is very different from them just not having the safety equipment that you think they should have during the day. And second, there's a lot of evidence that uh, people that people in cars tend not to give as wide a berth to people wearing helmets and safety gear and things like that. So there, there's an example of what, what's called the Peltzman effect. Yeah. So, so Sam Peltzman, speaking of regulatory economics, in the 1970s looked at, at seatbelt laws in the United States and found that, well, okay, when you, when you mandate seatbelts, people, people drive more recklessly. Uh, we have a very similar phenomenon. And they actually with kill like more, helmets. more right. bikers. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> kill, and, kill and more people on bikes and pedestrians. Yeah. yeah. Um, similarly in the U S if, if cars, if cars aren't paying, if cars aren't giving as wide a berth to people on bikes with helmets, and that's probably going to create, that's going to create more accidents, uh, and things like that in, in this particular case. Yeah, I would be, I, I don't know that I would have minded somebody saying, you know, young man, you should be wearing a helmet or, uh, someone knocking on our door and saying, you know, we're concerned about your kid, whatever. And being able to sit, being able to have the conversation, be like, okay, uh, I, I understand your concern. I appreciate it. Um, we trust him to ride his bike, whatever. Um, as opposed to just sort of anonymously posting on the internet, you know, here are these, these strangers over here who are doing this bad thing, or even worse, calling the cops. And frankly, yeah. creating a risk that it could yeah. go viral or something right. yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it, you, the social, I guess we're moving yeah. a little bit off topic sure. here, yeah. but, but let's end on this. Mm -hmm. I, I guess the... Uh, um, what the social mm -hmm. media is creating is sort of a, f a fake mm -hmm. village where, I mean, if, yeah. if you come and knock on the door, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and say, look, uh, mm -hmm. I know it's not on my business, but right. uh, w what are your thoughts on your son? Right, right? Do you know he's not yeah, wearing yeah, a helmet? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, that's very different. That's an actual yeah. village. That's yeah. actual yes. interaction between people. Right. Whereas this fake, mm -hmm. uh, this fake global village mm -hmm. where 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 you pretend to be concerned about people mm -hmm. that you know nothing about, mm -hmm. uh, or 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 you pretend to know something about yeah. people, or, or you can have con you, you, what you write can have consequences mm -hmm. for people yeah. who you 
don't know and who mm. you will never meet. Right. That's toxic. Yes. That's very yeah. different from, right. from you know, actually going there and knocking on the door. You can have some respect for that. Right. You know, it takes a bit of guts to yeah. do that. Yeah. The other thing, that's, that's just grandstanding. Yeah, I think we, we're, we're moving in a direction of getting law enforcement involved for everything. Yeah. Uh, and less in a direction of again, you know, knocking on the door and saying, "Hey, I think I think your son." Yeah, yeah. I, I would I would much rather I would much rather someone knock on the door and say, "Hey, you know, your son is smoking behind the you know, <laughs> whatever behind the grocery store or something like that," than than have them calling the cops. Uh, similarly, similarly, I'd much rather have someone knock on the door and saying, "Hey, I think your son should be wearing a helmet." Um, we're we're moving in the, we're moving more in the direction of getting the police involved, and less in the direction of taking care of each other the way that a real village does. Is there evidence of that? Um, <clears throat> I think there is. I, I would have to, I'd have to, to, to look, but I think there's more, um, I want to say I think there's more interaction between people and police than there's been traditionally. I could also, I could also just be, just be remembering, uh, mm. remember, remembering very vivid anecdotes. Okay. So, uh, yeah, see, definitely uh, true in the regulatory state where you call the health department as opposed oh, yeah. to yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yes, yes, and and obviously sorting out problems mm -hmm. on 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 the basis of uh, um, the particulars of the mm -hmm. situation yeah. can create solutions right. that are uh, you know plus some mm -hmm. solutions two winners. Yeah. Uh, whereas a regulation that comes from from a distance from mm -hmm. government will often create a situation where there's either one winner and one loser, right. or frankly, two losers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I'll finish with this. Uh, my grandfather um, um, was a regulator. Oh, okay. um, um, he, uh, he was a, 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 a chemist. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, at one point, he went to a factory that had uh, gases in a tank. Mm -hmm. And one type of gas there and another type of gas there. And mm -hmm. he measured, needs to be 12 meters between these two tanks. Mm -hmm. And he measures up, he goes, okay, 10 and a half meters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then the guy at the factory goes, so what do we, what do we need to do? Well, you know, in theory, you need to tear down that wall and move, uh, move that <laughs> another, another couple of centimeters in that direction. But let me just measure up one one more time. Uh, <laughs> and it's just, ah, there you go. 12 centimeters. 12 meters, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah. and um, th there's... Mm, is that corruption or is that uh, is that against the rule of law? I think it's quite s sensible. Uh, you, you have him judging, going, okay, right. the 12 meter thing, that is just, I mean, completely arbitrary. Right. So, so uh, this is this is a fascinating example because uh, it, it's not it's not really clear. Like it it's it seems obvious to me that the right thing to do is exactly what your grandfather did, yeah. as opposed to saying I'm going to shut you down. You have to incur these enormous costs in order to 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 um, in order to 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 meet the letter of the law, but that's another thing that that regulation does is it creates all of these gray areas where it's not really clear whether you're whether you're doing something wrong or not. Mm. So uh, another example again is is at the at the local park uh, right where we walk our dog. There the little baseball fields and the signs that say no dogs on the baseball field. And it's not really clear whether that actually means no dogs on the baseball field or if it's just there to absolve the city of liability in the case that someone puts their dog on the baseball field and something bad happens. I think those sorts this, this proliferation of rules creates a sort of uncertainty that I think you're exactly right, undermines the rule of law, mm. makes it a lot harder to figure out exactly what the real rules actually are, 
and makes it easy sometimes, I think, to to uh, say, oh, that's not really a rule. That, that, that doesn't actually mean what the sign says, when maybe, in fact, it actually does. Mm. That was great. Thank you. Art Cotton, thank you very much for taking thank part so in the much. podcast. Thank you so much. appreciate it, yeah. And look forward to your, uh, the, um, uh, the paperback version of, um, of, your, of your book with Deirdre McCloskey, uh, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, when that comes out. Uh, we'll buy it and put it under the Christmas tree. Ah, fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. This was the Copenhagen Liberty Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we would appreciate an honest review in your podcast app to help others find the show. Thank you for listening.